Okay, good luck. And this is now the Chumash portion of Sunday, a new Parsha, Parsha's Kiseitse. So the portion opens up saying, when you go out to war against your enemies, and your God will deliver him, your enemy, into your hands, and he'll capture its people as captives. So the opening Rashi, when you go out to war, so Rashi clarifies that we're talking here about an optional war, meaning there is the war of conquest of the land of Canaan and the war against Amalek. Those are mandatory wars. They're fulfilling God's commandments. And in those wars, you have to kill out everyone. But then there are optional wars, like this one. How do we know it's an optional war? Rashi says very simple proof. It says you'll capture captives. Well, in a mandatory war, you're not allowed to let anyone else stay alive. So we're talking about bringing back captives. Obviously, this was an optional war for defense or to acquire more territory. And it will capture captives. So Rashi clarifies why do we have this double expression here that we're even talking about Kinanim from the seven nations if they're in this other land. Meaning, if you're fighting a war with a nation that's not from the seven nations of the land of Israel, and you therefore, it's an optional war, and you could keep captives alive. You don't have to kill them all. If there were people from seven nations that live in this other land, even though they are from the seven nations, they're sort of absorbed into the general population status, and they can also be taken as captives. You don't have the obligation to kill them. The next verse, you'll see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you'll desire her, and you'll want to take her to yourself as a wife. So it says a woman, and Rashi says here, even a married woman, one is allowed to take. And you'll take her to yourself as a wife. So Rashi's questioning, why in the world is the Torah allowing us to do this? It seems like such a horrible thing. Here, you're, you're a Jewish man. You're fighting a war. You're, one of the captives is non-Jewish woman, and you're attracted to her, and you're allowed to take her. So Rashi explains that the reason why Torah permits it is because if God forbade it, you would do it anyway. But if you're going to marry her, and then you're going to hate her, how do we know that? Because we look at the passages, and there's three separate storylines that are linked here. First, we're talking about taking this woman captive and war, and then we talk about uh, if a man has this, uh, these two wives, one of which is hated, and then we talk about a child who's this rebellious child. So Rashi's saying, we'll follow the storyline. If you keep this woman, in the end she's going to become this hated wife, and then she's going to have this child who's going to be this rebellious child. So that's the reason for the juxtaposition of these three separate storylines telling you this is what's going to happen if you do this, but we're letting you do it because Everything I command you, you can handle. I think a beautiful lesson from this Rashi is sometimes there's many things God's command us that we don't think we can handle, that we think is way beyond our ability. But Rashi here is telling us that if we couldn't handle it, God wouldn't command it because here God is allowing something which seems so wrong because you're a soldier and all the passions and blood of war, you're in such a, an animalistic state at that point that God says, I know you. I know you're human. I can't forbid this. You won't be able to handle it. So I have to allow it and kosherize it and create a scenario and restrictions in which you can do this because otherwise you would just do it in a forbidden way. So whenever we feel overwhelmed 
and like, no way could God really want this from us. You can keep this in mind. What God asks from us, we can handle. So you have this woman as a wife. Now what happens? So the next verse says, you should bring her into the midst of your home. She has to shave her head and let her nails grow. Why is she letting her nails grow? Rashi says so she should become ugly. Meaning, we allowed you to take her, but we don't really want you to stay married to this woman. So we're doing all these things to make you not want to keep her. Next verse, she should remove the garments of captivity. She should sit in your house, and she should cry for her father and her mother for a month. And after that, you can live with her, and she could be your wife. So Rashi says, why are we having her take off the clothes of her captivity? So normally you would think if someone's in the clothes of captivity, it's sort of ragged schmatas, rags from captivity. But unfortunately, and this is truly hard to understand why, but the non-Jewish nations, their daughters would adorn themselves in the times of war to entice men. So therefore, they actually dressed in very beautiful and provocative clothing. So we don't want her to look beautiful to you, so she's changing into other garments, so she shouldn't be as attractive to you. And for the same reason, the next Rashi, and she has to sit in your house for a month. Why does she have to sit in your house for a month? The same reason. We want you to keep seeing her, seeing her with her nails grown long, not in fancy clothing, crying for her parents. We want you to not be attracted to her. And the same thing with the next Rashi. She has to mourn for her parents for a month. Why? So you should look at Jewish girls, and they should be beautiful and happy, and this one should be sad. The Jewish girls should be beautiful. This one should be ugly in your eyes. That's our goal. So we're allowing it, but we're definitely trying to get you to not want to have her as a wife. Next verse, and if you don't desire her, then you send her away. You can't sell her. You can't put her to work because you afflicted her. So Rashi says, if you don't desire her, which Rashi is telling you, the, the verse is telling you in the end, you are not going to desire her either as we want it, as Torah wants it now, in this trial month before you're married to her, you're going to already see, oh, what did I do? What was I thinking? I'm not interested in this woman. Or if, God forbid, you do get married to her, in the end, you're not going to want her. And you can't work her, which means you took this woman as a captive. A captive person captive in war becomes a slave. So you could think, all right, I had this crazy desire for her. She looked so beautiful to me when I was in my war mode, and I thought I would want to marry her. Now, because I'm a Orthodox from person and I'm keeping God's laws, and I see I, I really don't want to marry her at all, you can say, okay, well, she's still a slave. She can still work as a slave in my house. I mean, I, she's a captive woman. Sarah says, no, you're not allowed to do that. Because you wanted to marry her, but didn't marry her, and for a month had her undergo this period of mourning and growing her nails and all those things, no, you're done. You can't use her as a slave, and you can't sell her to someone else as a slave. You're done. You just have to free her because you did want to marry her, and now you are not marrying her. So you see Torah's compassion here for this woman in this law. So that was the end of the first story. And now we go to the next, so to speak, story, laws, which is, next verse, and remember, the connection is if you actually do end up marrying this woman, this is what's going to happen. If a man has two wives, biblically you're allowed to have more than one wife. Uh, nowadays, it's forbidden by the rabbis. The Ashkenazim forbade it many, many, many years ago and inspired in more recent times. 
So the man will have two wives, one beloved and one hated. Again, that hated wife would be this woman taken captive if you actually did end up marrying her. And they both give him sons. The beloved one gives him sons, and the hated one gives him sons. And let's say, in your situation, the firstborn son was born to the hated one. You took this woman captive, and after that whole month, you still decided you want to marry her, and you married her. So at this point, I mean, she's your wife, and she gives you a child. This is your first child. This is your firstborn son. You have to treat him like a firstborn son, even though you're like, oh, my gosh, this was such a mistake, and I'm so sorry I took this woman. It doesn't make a difference. This is your firstborn son. Um, so what's the law? With, of course, this law is true for any situation of a firstborn son. The Torah is dressing it in the storyline of uh, the firstborn son being the son of a hated woman to say even in such a situation, this is the law. In any situation, this is the law with a firstborn son. Next verse, it should be on the days that you're giving inheritance to your son. You can't transfer the right of the firstborn to the son of the beloved, meaning you have this son of your hated wife, your older son, and then you have another son that came from the firstborn of a different wife, of a wife you actually love. So you're thinking, okay, he's firstborn, he's firstborn. I'm going to make my firstborn of my beloved wife having the rights of the firstborn. The Torah says, no, he's not allowed to do that. Next verse, rather he has to give the firstborn to his firstborn, the son of that hated wife. What's his right? To give him double and all that he has and found with him because he's your firstborn. He has the rights. So Rashi explains double means he gets the portion of two brothers, meaning he's not getting twice as much as all the brothers combined, which might be another version of the word double, but however many sons there are, each son we divide, if there were five sons, so you would divide his estate into six portions. Every son gets one-fifth, and the oldest gets, I'm sorry, every son gets one-sixth. You have five sons. All the other sons get one-sixth, and the oldest son gets two-sixths, in this case one-third of the estate, double of the other sons. Why does the verse say, in all that is found with him? The verse said, to give him double in all that is found with him. So Rashi clarifies those words to mean that the rights of the firstborn to double is only in what the person had, that the father had at the time when he passed away. If there was anything that accrued after that, then all the brothers divided evenly. Um, like, for example, let's say someone owes the father money. We'll make it a nice sum. Someone owes the father $20,000. And maybe three months after the father passed away, this person comes, you know, I feel so bad. Your father passed away. I never paid the debt. Here's the 20000 So that money gets split evenly. If we have our five sons, each one gets 4000 The oldest can say, wait, I get double portion. You all get one six. I get a third. I get two six. No because the father didn't literally have this in his hands at the time of his death, so therefore it's not applicable, these laws. Now we go on to our last and final story of today's portion, which is the rebellious son. Which again, remember the connection of these issues, if you actually keep this woman, this captive woman, and you do insist on marrying her, despite everything her did to try to dissuade and it's going to become your his wife, and she'll have a child that will be your rebellious son. Of course, one can have a rebellious son, not from a woman captive and not from a hated wife. We're just saying one for the story. 
before we even enter into the laws of this rebellious son, in the Gemara, when they discuss it, the general opinion of the Gemara is just impossible for this to ever happen. We're talking here to give a little overview on this situation of a situation so implausible. So there's so many laws that have to happen, and if any of those laws don't happen, the whole thing falls apart. So it's so improbable to actually happen. But there are these laws. There are these laws because it's also for some God's will we're supposed to connect to. Are these laws truly impact us on the need to properly educate our children? Are these laws because every aspect of Torah connects us to a certain part of God's rule and we have to connect to this part of God's rule? There can be various reasons why we have these laws. Are these laws to show us to what degree a parent has to sacrifice everything for God? Here you're giving up your very child. Putting your child to death because it's God's will. Many reasons given why we can have these laws that realistically probably never happen. Storyline in brief before we enter the verse and just understand is if there's a boy who, from when he's 13 until 13 and 3 months, there's a 3 month span for all this to happen. He has to be going in a bad path. The parents take him to a tribunal court of three who warn him if he's seen this way, this person happens to you. He doesn't care. He steals from his father's money. If he steals from anyone else's money, he's a thief. All these laws don't apply. He steals from his father's money. And with that, he buys kosher meat, kosher wine. If you eat a wine from kosher, these laws don't apply. And he has to eat in a gulping, voracious fashion. Eight ounces of meat, very bloody rare. And drink about 10 ounces of wine, straight like, hope, 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 hope down in bad company, outside his father's property, when there are two kosher witnesses that warn him that if he does this, he's going to be violating God's laws, and he says he doesn't care, and he does it anyway, and they are witnesses, and they warn him, and they come back and tell the parents, and the parents take him to the court of three, and the court now gives him lashes, and he's warned, this another time, you're going to be this Ben Thoramura, this stubborn, rebellious child that gets killed. And he doesn't care, and he does the whole thing all over again. Again, steals from his father's money. Five, again, the wine has to be kosher, the meat has to be kosher, he has to cook the meat bloody rare, he has to eat it in gulping, like one shot of meat and one shot of wine, in bad company, with two witnesses, that warn him, that witness the whole thing. And then they come back, tell the parents, and the parents have to take him to the court, and now it's the court of 23, and he's put to death by stoning. And the reason why God does this is because the person's already like this at this point in their life when they're so young and they're so stuck in their evil that after everything happened, they still keep going. That's what they hope It's going to wind up being a highway robber and murderer. So I'd rather take him out of this world when he's not yet a murderer of people because that's the only thing that's going to happen to the person who's already like this when he's 13 and 3 months. So as you've seen from the laws, and, and there are more, I'm just trying to give a brief overview, the reality of this actually happening, what if he did all this but he stole from someone else's money, not his father's? What if he all did this and he cooked the meat so it wasn't rare? What if he did all this but there wasn't two witnesses? You know, it's so unlikely. All this will happen within three months, from 13, till 13 and three months. But yet, because the law, this is part of God's will. And if there was such a situation, this would be exactly the law to follow. So very quickly doing these verses now, the person will have a sin over Omora, which Rashi translates Sarah as he's turning from the way, and Moira as rebellious, the rebellion gets towards his father, who doesn't listen to the voice of his father and mother, and the parents are involved. 
if he's an orphan, these rules don't apply. If the parents are dysfunctional, these rules don't apply. Parents have to be functional and healthy and both on the same page educating him and trust. Have they discipline him if he doesn't listen to them? The Rashi translates versus I just declare and Mora. And then discipline him again as I explained. They warn him and then he transgresses with the whole stealing and meat and wine situation I explained, and then he gets lashes. And then Rashi says, what made him this? And Rashi gives what I just explained to you. He's liable for punishment when he steals from his father's money, eats this amount of meat, and half a loaf of wine, about eight ounces of meat, and five to ten ounces of wine, gulping it down to be a glutton and a drunkard. And Rashi explains here, as I said, why is the Torah killing this person? Because in the end of the day, after he steals all of his father's money, and he'll still want to continue his habits, he'll stand at the crossroads, rob, and kill people, and let him die now when he's innocent and not a murderer, because otherwise the Torah can end up being put to death as a murderer. So his parents, back to the verse 19, grab him, they have to be able to take him physically, He's taken to the elders of the city, to the gate. Next door is the gate of the elders. This son of ours is rebellious, he's not listening to us, he's lost his struggle, then he has to put the back of his own name, he has to put the back of his own name, he has to put the back of his own name, and here. So that last rock is section. That's where we see that before we're doing now, so and so was stolen. For being this stubborn, Ben Sura Turning off the way, rebellious son. Good job.